I would like to start this morning by wishing all the dads a happy Father's Day. I would like to start by wishing me a happy Father's Day. Because I'm trying to put extra pressure on my children. As you should. (laughs) Yes, I I don't know why. (laughs) Turn to the book of Matthew. Turn to Matthew 27. We are going to... Make some big inroads into the book of Matthew. We may even finish the book this morning, but not according to dawn. So we're going to try to make as much progress as we can make. However, in so doing, we're also going to find ourselves right in the midst of controversy yet again. And since I am no stranger to controversy, and because I am iconoclastic at heart... We're going to uh, knock over a couple of icons and see what the Bible really says. We are in chapter 27 of the book of Matthew. We're starting at verse 57. That's where we left off last week. Now that Jesus has, in fact, given up the ghost, now that he has turned his spirit over to his father, we read about the beginning of the three days and three nights that he predicted he was going to be in the heart of the earth. And so first we have to talk about how he ended up in that grave. And that's what happens in verse 57. And when it was evening, there came a rich man of Arimathea. We all know that that's Joseph of Arimathea. Oh, name Joseph, that's convenient. (laughs) Who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary, sitting opposite the grave. Now the controversial verse. Verse 62 says, Now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. And we're going to spend the next 15-20 minutes just talking about that verse. Because that verse says... On the next day, comma, which is the one after the preparation. Well, what is the day after the day of preparation? The day after the day of preparation is the Sabbath. And everywhere else that you look in the Bible, the Sabbath is called the Sabbath. But this time it's called the day after the day of preparation. Now, you can go on the internet and you can find all sorts of theories as for why it's called the day after the day of preparation. A very common assumption about this verse is that Matthew, because he probably wrote these events about 30 years after the events actually took place, that by then the early church was already celebrating Sundays and weren't keeping the Sabbaths, And therefore, Matthew changed the language to the day after the day of preparation. I want to state that that makes no sense. Because he's still talking about the Jews and what the Jews did. And the Jews still celebrated the day of Sabbath, even after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That was still an integral part, the sign and seal of their whole religion, keep the Sabbath. So why did he take the time at this particular moment to refer to it as the day after the day of preparation? Well, this is not the only time that the Sabbath is mentioned. I'm going to have you guys look up a couple of verses. Tom, look up Mark 16.1. And while he's doing that, Thaddeus right behind him, look up Luke 23.56. 
because these two verses are also going to tell us what occurred on the Sabbath after Jesus died. But it's also going to create an enormous conflict. And we have to be able to settle this conflict or else the Bible's not true. The Bible's inaccurate and the gospel reporters were prone to error. So then how can we believe anything they said? Tom, what does Mark 16.1 say? When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So when the Sabbath was passed, so so far we have a, a day of preparation, we have a day after the preparation, which would be the Sabbath, and then we find out that when the Sabbath passed, they went and got the spices, right? Yep. That's what it says. That's what it says. Thaddeus, your verse is uh, Luke twenty three fifty six. What does it say? Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath. They rested according to the commandment. Wait, so Tom said they got their spices after the Sabbath, and Thaddeus said they got their spices before the Sabbath. So what were these women up to? (laughs) Did they go before the Sabbath or did they go after the Sabbath? Or do the gospel writers just not understand what they're saying? Did they not compare notes? Were they not telling the same story for those 30 years? Did they get their details confused? Or were there two Sabbaths? I contend that there were two Sabbaths. Let's read a little bit about the rules concerning the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the first day of the week, which was the first fruits. Keep your finger there in Matthew. Turn to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus in the Old Testament, Leviticus 23. And we're going to find out what the Jews were doing over that holiday weekend, over that Passover weekend. Chapter 23 of the book of Leviticus says, The Lord spoke again to Moses. I still hear pages. People are flipping. I can wait. The Lord spoke again to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. For six days, work may be done, but on the seventh day, there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work, and it is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Okay, so every seven days, on what we would call Saturday, that's the Sabbath day. You can't do any work. Now, also what you need to remember is that by the Jewish lunar reckoning, a day begins as soon as the sun goes down. So tonight when the sun goes down, it'll technically be Monday already. We are on a solar calendar, therefore we figure our days from midnight till noon till midnight. But they did not. They did not have those kinds of clocks. They didn't have Timex. They weren't They weren't following that. They were following nature. They were following the cycles of the moon. And as soon as the sun went down and it was evening and then it became dark, it was the next day. So the next day, the Sabbath day, began at Friday at sundown. You got all that? And it lasted until Saturday at sundown. And then the first day of the week began. Now, verse 4 These are the appointed times of the Lord, the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the times appointed to them. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. Okay, this helps. On the 14th of Nisan. That is Passover. It is also at evening, which means that it begins right at evening. 
the day before. Got it? Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Okay, this is helpful. Nisan 15th, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're going to call it Unbread. That'll be quicker. Then on the 15th day of the same month, there is a Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. But look at the next verse, verse 7. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any laborious work. So that sounds like a Sabbath, doesn't it? In fact, the rules are identical to a Sabbath. You can't do any servile work. You can't do any laborious work on the first day of unleavened bread. Now, these things occur on the 14th of Nisan and on the 15th of Nisan, but it says nothing about what day of the week that is. It only says the 14th and the 15th. For instance, Josiah, when's your birthday? December 24th. Do you remember what day of the week that landed on last year? Pop quiz. <laughs> de, 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 de. Might have been a Saturday. Okay. It was a Thursday. It was a Thursday? <laughs> it was close. <laughs> you only had seven options. Okay, so your birthday was on a Thursday. This coming year, what day is your birthday on? Can you just expect it to be on Thursday again? No, of course not. Because the date of your birth is what's important, not the day of your birth. Got it? Same thing here. The 14th and 15th of Nisan, regardless of what day they actually occur, would be a yearly feast to the Lord. And on the 15th of Nisan, it was a high day. It was a Sabbath. It was a day that you couldn't do any servile work. I'll show you that in just a moment. I'll prove that to you. Despite what Leviticus has already told us, there's more evidence of it in the New Testament. But for seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord, and on the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work. Okay, so now we've got a week-long feast that starts on the 15th of Nisan, and on the first day and on the seventh day, these are Sabbaths. Got it? Okay. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am giving to you, and you reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. What day is the day after the Sabbath? Sunday. Okay, so now you've got a week-long feast. From the 15th, another week, high day at the beginning and the end, and somewhere in that week, there will be a Sunday. It's a seven-day feast, so somewhere there's going to be a Sunday, and that Sunday is the Feast of Firstfruits. Now, we're told in the New Testament that Jesus rose on the first day of the week. We know that for a fact. We know that somewhere after sundown Saturday, the beginning of the first day of the week, we know that Jesus rose that day. But what day he died... We don't actually know. This idea that he died on Friday and raised on Sunday was handed to us in the 7th century by the church at Rome. And ever since then, as the church calendar has been codified, as the calendar, the solar calendar, has been adjusted, Easter has become set in stone. The early church used to celebrate the risen Christ on the first Sunday, the first day of the week that came after Passover, regardless of what day Passover fell. Our current Gregorian calendar, which is an adjustment of the Julian calendar, 
concludes that Easter comes. This is how we get Easter, just so you all understand every year where Easter comes from. We get Easter because the church in the 7th century, in an adjustment to the Gregorian calendar, decided, <clears throat> decided that after the vernal equinox, which is the spring equinox, which they then set in stone as March 21st, after that equinox, the first full moon, the following Sunday after that full moon, is Easter. And so they codified that as the church calendar. And along with Easter Sunday, then came Good Friday and Monday, Thursday, and 40 days of Lent and Mardi Gras, all that stuff, all just grew out of the tradition that was built around the death of Christ. There is nothing in the Bible, not a single word, that tells us what day he died. But we know the calendar date. We know he died on Nisan 14th. And we know that the beginning of Nisan 15th is when he was put in the grave. That was the beginning of unleavened bread. And since he kept likening himself as the bread that came down from heaven, since he was the bread that had no sin in him, his body became the unleavened bread. He even broke the unleavened bread at Passover and said, this is my body. And then his body was laid in the grave at the beginning of unleavened bread. That day was a Sabbath day. You want to see it? Turn to the book of John. Turn to John 19.31. John was the last of the four apostles who wrote a gospel for us. And so John added a little hint, parenthetically, simply, I think, because the three synoptic gospels just simply didn't include it. And he knew that it was an important detail. So he included this particular thing. Somebody got John 19.31? Read it for us. The Jews, therefore, because it was a preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day. For that Sabbath day was in a high day. He saw Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Okay, so here's John saying that that Sabbath day that occurred after the day of Jesus' death was a high day. Okay, why was that important? Why would he even have to say that? I mean, if it's the Sabbath day, we all know it's the Sabbath. But why was the day after Jesus' death considered a Sabbath? John even calls it a Sabbath and calls it a high Sabbath because it's the 15th of Nisan. It's the first day of unleavened bread. And if that's a fact, and then there's another day in between, and then the weekly Sabbath, we can have the women buy the spices the day before the Sabbath and the day after the Sabbath. Because there are two Sabbaths in that week. I contend that Jesus died on what we would refer to as a Wednesday. And that Wednesday night, the beginning of Nisan 15th, he was put into the grave. And then he stayed in the grave until the first day of the week, which would have been Saturday night, sometime during the night, before the dawn, because the women came at the crack of dawn and the grave was empty. And so sometime during the night he rose. That means that he was actually in the grave three days and three nights. Somebody look up Matthew 12, 40. Matthew 12, 40. You got it, Meg? Stand up and read it. Nice and loud. Everybody's got to hear you. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish... So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, can we assume, this is my assumption, but I assume that the maker of heaven and earth knows what a day is. I assume that he knows what a night is. I assume that he knows how long a night is and how long a day is. And so when he says three days and three nights, he means three days and three nights. But then after declaring that he himself was going to be in the belly of the earth, in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, he even defines for us what a night is or what a day is. Somebody look up John 11 verse 9. This is also Jesus speaking. John 11 verse 9. 
Jesus has just told us that he's going to be in the grave for three days and three nights. Does he mean three actual days, three actual nights, 72 hours, or does he mean a truncated version of Friday night till Sunday morning during which somehow the high priest went to see Pilate, the women bought the spices they didn't know they were supposed to get. This is a Sabbath day when all these things are supposed to take place. Remember, by the way, that the Jewish leaders were adamant about the Sabbath. They accused Jesus' disciples of picking corn on the Sabbath. They accused Jesus of healing a man so that he could carry his bed on the Sabbath. What is the likelihood that they're going to go meet with a Gentile ruler and then you're going to see them leave town, go outside the wall, go to Golgotha, go to the tomb, make a mark or a seal on the tomb, and then come back. They're going to do all that on Sabbath day. Is there any likelihood that they would do that? No. But if they all kept the high day, and then there's a Friday during which they can all move about, then the women can go get the spices, then the Jews can go talk to Pilate, Everything. In fact, mathematically, it works well because they would go Friday because they knew they couldn't travel on Saturday. And that's why they would go to the Romans to have the Romans post a guard on the grave. Otherwise, they'd go guard it themselves. They'd go look after it themselves. But they can't. It's a Sabbath. They have to be at their homes. And therefore, they ask for a Roman guard. Now, I asked the question a minute ago, do you think that Jesus knows how long a day is? What does John 11, 9 say? You got it there, Tyler? Yes. You better stand up and read it so everyone in the back can hear it. Just verse 9? Just verse 9. Right. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours? Talk to them. Don't talk to me. Jesus answered, <laughs> Jesus answered are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. So Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in a day? Now the common thinking, because of the tradition which has been handed down to us from the Roman church, is that part of Friday, all of Saturday, and a sliver of Sunday, somehow satisfies three days, three nights. But Jesus said three days, three nights, and then he defined how long a day is, 12 hours. And so I believe that he was actually in the grave 72 actual hours, three days, three nights, that he died on a Wednesday, which then the high day would be on Thursday. Then the day that they could travel and get all this stuff accomplished was on Friday. Then Saturday was the weekly Sabbath. And then Sunday he rose, perfectly keeping the Feast of Passover when he became our Passover lamb. We're going to read about that when we get to the first and second Corinthians because the early church did not know anything about Good Friday. That never came up in the early church. 800 years that didn't come up. Seventh century is the first sighting of Good Friday that we find anywhere. I'm just arguing. The only reason that I'm saying all this is that I'm just arguing that the Bible knows what it's talking about. And if you know the Old Testament feasts, Nisan 14th, Nisan 15th, if you know the Old Testament feasts and that the day after Jesus died was, as John told us, a high day, then you understand how the women could go buy their spices before the Sabbath and after the Sabbath. And the Bible suddenly makes all the sense in the world. This book is a guide to the Gospels by uh, W. Graham Scroggy. Scroggy, Scroggy, I don't know. S-C-R-O-G-G-I-E. This is a harmony of the four Gospels. It's, uh, as you can see, quite thick and quite well-researched and annotated. And this is really the first book which I got out in California. This was the first book that kind of convinced me that the tradition was wrong and that, in fact, Jesus had to have died earlier in the week. I'm just going to read one paragraph here because he sums it up very well. It has been well said... However the tradition of Good Friday may have arisen, it has been thoroughly proved that it is quite incompatible with a due consideration of the gospel narratives. Did you understand that sentence? If you look at the gospel narratives, Friday to Sunday doesn't work. We just proved it. Moreover, he writes, 
it provides much capital for many forcible infidel arguments because they can point to things like I pointed out about the women. Was it before the Sabbath or after the Sabbath? And how do you get three days and three nights from Friday to Sunday? And so many an infidel has used that as their argument to say the Bible is not true. But it is true. We should not be confounded by the traditions that have simply been handed to us by history. So he says, moreover, it provides much capital for many forcible infidel arguments by introducing many apparent contradictions. The blows from which the traditionalist try to parry by resorting to some very unsatisfactory shuffling sophisms, which undermine the confidence in the solidarity of the truth of the word of God. Therefore, those who love the Lord not only with all their heart, but also as Jesus enjoins with all their mind and with all their willing hearts, then they are willing to have expounded unto them the right way of God more perfectly. And thus they become enlightened and are compelled by the spirit of truth to abandon the tradition of Good Friday, being the day on which our Savior was crucified. He was clearly crucified earlier in the week. So, Sophism, Uh, that's a word that means that the traditionalists, the people who have been handed the tradition of Good Friday, have to do a great deal of tap dancing in order to make their tradition fit with what the Bible says. And that's why we began by demonstrating the contradictions. You can't get three days and three nights out of Friday to Sunday. You can't determine when the women bought the spices. Was it before? Was it after the the Sabbath day? If it was after the Sabbath day, Jesus is already up. If it was before the Sabbath day, when exactly? Because we've already got them at the gravesite, and it was evening, and the Sabbath was starting, so the shops were closed. So when did they go do this? But if there's a day in between, after the first high day, and before the second Sabbath, there's plenty of time for them to accomplish everything they need to accomplish. You got it? Yes, ma'am. How do you spell that word? Sophism? S-O-P-H. Like sophistry. Like wisdom. Like wisdom. Yes. S-O-P-H-I-S-M. Sophism. Easy. The place where they show now is the with Jesus. Right. Where they've got the wall, the rock wall. Right. Because, as we're going to find out in a moment, because it was close. Right. It was close to Golgotha. Close so it was convenient for Joseph of Arimathea to get the body, get it moved, and get it into the grave. By the way, since you've toured Jerusalem, when you go to Jerusalem, how many places do they show you that might be well, the burial place of Jesus? Right, you said, well, there's another one. I just find that one of the most fascinating parts of this entire story and the detail within it, uh, the reason that they show you a couple of graves and they don't know which one was Jesus' grave is because he's not in it. There's no body in it. You can find Grant's tomb. You can find Washington's tomb. You can find my father's grave. You can find Because there's a body there. But there was no body left in the tomb, and that's why they're not sure where the tomb was. Because it's not important. It doesn't, he was only in it for three days. He rented it. Anyway, we, we, now we need to move. Go back to Matthew. So, Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, which is the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, 
and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal his body away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last deception is going to be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and they made the grave secure along with the guard that they set Along with the guard, they also set a seal on the stone. So they wanted to make sure the stone wasn't moved or rolled. So they set some kind of seal that would show whether the stone had been moved because the expectation was that his apostles were going to come and they were going to steal the body. And we're going to find out in a minute that that became the rumor from very, very early on. Now let's think logically for just a moment about this. If Jesus did not rise from the dead... If he did not resurrect, then somebody stole the body. Because like I said, even to this very day, they don't know which tomb because there's no body in it. So now, what are the categories? Either the apostles stole the body, or the Jews stole the body, or the Romans stole the body. Those are really the only three people who could have taken the body. Well... It can't be the Jews, because the Jews were persecuting the early church to stop preaching that Jesus was dead and then alive. And so if the Jews had the body, at some point they would have pulled it out and said, here's the body. There it is. We have him. And yet nowhere, and this is astounding, nowhere in human history do we find that the Jews ever claimed to have the body. Okay, the Jews don't have it. The Romans were persecuting the church. The Romans were killing Jesus on the charge that he was making himself God, which would mean that Caesar was not God. If the Romans had taken the body, then the Romans would have yanked the body out at some point and said, okay, the church is done. Okay, that Christianity thing, done. The only God you have is Caesar. Let's go back to that. Done. And yet, again, In all of human history, not once, not anywhere, which is amazing. You would think that some Roman, if he knew that the Romans had the body, somebody would have at least written it. Even if they didn't produce it, they would at least claim it. We've got the body. And yet no one ever did. So the Jews and the Romans do not have the body. And that leads to the only conclusion that's possible from the Jews and Romans perspective, which is, Well, then the apostles took the body. And then you have to ask the question, well, why? Did you have your hand up? Yeah, I was just going to say the guards, the Roman guards didn't want to get killed either. The Roman guards were going to be killed when they found out the body was gone. And in fact, the Jews, you're going to read it in a minute. The Jews get together with the guards and say, take some money, say his disciples stole the body, and we'll make it okay with Pilate. We'll take care of that. So there's this whole political intrigue that makes it impossible to think that the Romans or the Jews had the body. So that leaves us with the disciples took the body. That's all we've got. He either resurrected or the disciples stole the body. So if the disciples stole the body, they knew they were liars when they said that he raised again. Right? They knew that they were telling a story that can't be proven. There's no Jesus, really. You can't show him to anybody. You can't have any sort of encounter with him because he's still dead, but we're preaching him as if he's alive. And yet, they know they're liars. Do you know that every one of the disciples was killed in some really horrific way? They were martyred by some terrible form of torture and death. If you go back and you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can see that they were boiled in oil, their skin was flayed off, they were driven through with swords, they were sacrificed upside down, and all they had to do to stop the torture was say, we made it up. We made it up. We lied. 
He's not alive. And yet nowhere in the annals of history do you find any record of a single one of them ever recanting. Now, I can believe that men will die for something they truly believe, even if it's wrong. I believe that a, a Mormon will die for what he believes. We, we see it all the time. An Islamic will blow himself up because of what he believes. But he really believes it. What I can't handle is the idea that the apostles died for something they knew was a lie. In other words, they believed it. They all believed it, and they all preached it. Now, either they had a mass hallucination, or they all got together in a room at some point and said, okay, here's our story. We got to hurry. Pentecost is coming. We got to get our story right. Let's go, guys. We got 50 days. Let's move. Because from Pentecost forward, the story never changed. The story was, he's alive. He got up again. He resurrected. In fact, we saw him. We handled him. We talked to him. We saw him eating fish. And then he appeared, according to Paul's own record, he appeared at one time to more than 500 brethren, who Paul said the most of whom are still alive to this day. Go check with them. And so Jesus appeared, and he appeared, and he appeared, and then they exaggerated the story and said, not only is he alive, but he sailed off into the blue and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now they're really stretching the story if they're lying. Or that's what happened. And all of the evidence, all the historic evidence, all the written evidence is that he's alive. And like we heard a moment ago, the reason that we don't know what tomb the body was in is because he's out of it. And that's the power, that's the strength of the empty tomb. The fact that the tomb is empty leads us to either conclude that he's alive or the apostles lied. And those are the only two choices. There's no other choice. And once I reached that point and concluded that they, they all died, they all martyred themselves for what they believed and that they genuinely believed it, I have no other conclusion I can come to. He's alive. And by the way, if that's true, then the rest of Christianity that says that because he's alive, he will send his Holy Spirit, which will inhabit some particular people, and those particular people will understand the word of God, and those people will be drawn to God, and those people will have faith despite themselves. Well, that's true of everybody in this room. And the very fact that you individually have this kind of faith is proof that he's alive. And so it just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling, evidence upon evidence. I can tell you the factual, historical evidence, but I can also tell you the very personal evidence. The very personal evidence is, I'm a Christian today. And that was not plan A. But I'm a Christian because he's alive. And there's simply no other explanation that makes sense, except he's resurrected. What were you going to ask? I was just going to say, to me, another evidence was the change in the disciples. Absolutely. They changed dramatically. When you read books that show the evidences of the resurrection of Christ, that's one of the things they bring up, is that every one of the apostles changed dramatically. Let me give you two quick examples. Uh, James and John were nicknamed by Jesus the Sons of Thunder. That's a good nickname because they wanted to call down fire from the sky and burn up his enemies. And yet nobody wrote more about love than John. What happened to him? He went from let's call down fire and kill your enemies to love your enemies. How did this happen? We get the most complete personality profile in the Bible. We get the most... Complete profile of Peter, Mr. Sandal and Mouth, Mr. Always Say the Wrong Thing, Mr. Always Saying the Wrong Stuff. And yet, 
It is Peter who stands up on the day of Pentecost at risk of his own life and tells the Jews, you desired to have a murderer and you killed the prince of life. Something changed. <laughs> Something in Peter changed. I think it's he saw the risen Lord. He's up now. It's different now. Thomas always doubting. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. 2,000 years later, if you're Thomas, wouldn't you like to be rid of that nickname by now? But we still call him Doubting Thomas. Always. It's always Thomas who's saying, we don't know the way. Jesus says, where I go, you know the way. You know where I go, you know the way. He says, well, I don't know the way. Of course he does. He's doubting. I will not believe unless I can put my own hands into the marks in his side and in his hands. See the nail prints for myself. I will not believe. He ends up calling him my Lord and my God. Something changed. He went from doubting to best tradition says that Thomas went into southern India, Chennai, to this very day, claims to be the place where Thomas was martyred. He went into one of the most difficult places in the world to preach the gospel and went there and preached the risen Christ and had his, as I said earlier, was, was driven through with staves and swords and he gave his life preaching the resurrected God. And yet he was the big doubter. Again, I don't believe he's a liar. I have to believe that he saw something he couldn't explain any other way except I saw the risen Lord and I now have been told by that Lord to go and preach his gospel and I must do that. Here, let's finish up. Now, after the Sabbath, this is verse 1 of chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. Okay, there's the first day of the week. We know where the first day of the week. But to any thoroughgoing Jew, they also know, oh, first day of the week during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's first fruits. Which is why Paul would pick it up and say very clearly that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. He saw the fulfillment of that feast. And then you would wait 50 days, and then there'd be the Feast of Weeks, which was also called Pentecost. And sure enough, Pentecost happened exactly on the right day. So those first four feasts of the Lord were perfectly fulfilled in the death, in the burial, in the resurrection, and in the Holy Spirit coming. Those feasts were perfectly on time fulfilled because God's in that kind of control. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone, and he sat upon it. Which, by the way, I just like the image of. I like the fact that he rolled away the stone and then sat on it like, ta-da. <laughs> And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come. See the place where he was lying. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. And behold, I have told you. Which is an interesting phrase. That means that he was on a mission. He had words to say. That's why he stayed till the women got there. And behold, I've told you what I mean to tell you. And my message is, he's risen. Now go and tell his disciples, which I also think is an interesting phrase. He didn't say, now go and tell anybody you run into. He said, go to his disciples. Why? Because Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to rise again three days, three nights, and I'm going to go into Galilee, and I'm going to see you there. And sure enough, the angel shows up and says, he went into Galilee, and he's going to see you there. Just like he said. And behold, I have told you. 
Verse 8, and they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take my word to my brethren to leave for Galilee And there they shall see me. So now they've seen an angel. Then they've seen the risen Lord. Both of them have confirmed adequate witness. There's two of them. They have said, I'm in Galilee. You go to Galilee. You'll see me there. Now, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. Remember, the guard was hired by the chief priests. And so now they have to report to somebody, and they've got to say, okay, we, we slept. We were like dead men. We fell over, but there was an angel. And then when we woke up, no body. The body's gone. The tomb is empty. And then they know, by Roman law, that means they've lost their prisoner, and they're going to be killed. And so they're very scared, and they come and they report all the things that have happened And verse 12 says, and when they had assembled with the elders and council together, they then gave the guards a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say this, say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, then we will win him over and we will keep you out of trouble. And they took the money, and they did as they were instructed, and this story was widely spread among the Jews to this day. So among the Jews, that became their excuse. That became what happened. The disciples stole the body. And that's why I went through all the effort to show you that's an untenable position. It's a common position started all the way back in the first century. And you can still find people today on the internet making that same argument. But it's untenable. But the 11 disciples, 11 because Judas had killed himself, proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Do you think he meant that? Yes. Do you think he knew what he was talking about? When he said all, did he mean all or mostly? All. 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 I have all the authority. I have all the authority in heaven. I have all the authority on earth, and it's been given to me from God. I have all authority. So how much authority does that leave over for Jeff? Nothing. Sorry, you got nothing. Nothing, no authority. All authority resides in Christ. And that's the reason that to this very day we continue to worship him and to praise him and to sing to him and to pray to the Father in Christ's name because we recognize that he has all the authority in heaven and earth. And without him, we have absolutely nothing. Without him, we're lost in our sins. Without him, we don't have a plea before the Father when he judges us. We know that he has all the authority, and so we sing to him and praise him and pray to him and worship him because we know where the authority is. I recently found out for sure that I had no authority. I was laying in a hospital bed going, yep, no authority. I had no authority. I couldn't even, by my own thought, by my own will, I couldn't even add a cubit to my stature. I can't, by taking thought, grow more hair. I can't, by taking thought, make my daughter well when she's sick. I can't, by taking thought, suddenly have food if I have no food. I can't, by taking thought, do anything. But he can. 
He has conquered the one thing that everybody so fears, the one thing that everybody is so concerned about, the great equalizer, that death is coming to everybody, and he conquered death and got up from death and promised you that by that same power, you are going to conquer death. So he said to the 11, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all all nations, baptizing them in the name. Let's talk about that for just a moment, in the name. I've used this example many, many times. Uh, So one day you're at home, you're just minding your own business, not doing any harm, and then there's a knock at the door, and they say, open up, and you say, no, because that's my door, and I don't know who you are. I'm not going to open up to you, and they say, open up in the name of the law. Oh, that's different. In the name of the law. So now you know that the person outside is a representative of the law. And he has the authority of the state and the government and the police behind him. And so he's not saying open up by my authority. He's saying open up by the authority that is vested in me as a police officer of the law of the state of Tennessee. Now you're opening the door. The name. That's the point. So Jesus said, when you pray, pray in my name. Because you don't have the right as a sinful individual to go barging into God's presence. But you have the right through Christ, through his authority, through his name, you have the right to go cry, Abba, Father. So he's the way. That's why he said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Because he has all the authority, and in his authority, in his name, then go out and baptize people. Then go out and make learners, make disciples, and go out and teach all nations the gospel. Okay, a few minutes ago, we went on a fairly long tangent about something changing. And I named three men, and I said something changed. Remember, if you will, that Jesus, the first time he sent out his apostles, gave them very specific instruction and said, don't go in the way of the Gentiles and don't go in the way of the Samaritans. Go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and go and preach the kingdom is close by. The kingdom is near. Now he's saying, go to all nations. Go to the Gentiles, go to the Samaritans, go to all the people groups and preach about me. Something changed. What changed? Well, the new covenant is now in effect. Remember that at the Last Supper, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. And so when he died, when he shed his blood, he actually codified, put into place the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith the old covenant that the Jews that Israel were under for 1400 years the rules that we find in the first five books of the Bible those rules were called the old covenant and then Jesus died and buried and resurrected again and implemented the new covenant and via the old covenant He could only deal with Israel. He could only deal with God's chosen nation, that particular people. And so he would restrict the message from going to any other people group than that people group. But after his resurrection, now that the new covenant has come, now he can say to everybody everywhere, come to Jesus. Come to Christ. And for those of us who are Gentiles, we're happy to know that the Jewish Messiah is now available to all people groups. And what do you do when you find them? Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and teach them. The word discipline is right in the word disciple. Disciple means a learner, a student. Go and make students of Jesus from all the nations. So teach them. You have to teach them in order for them to be a learner and baptize them in the name, in the authority of the Father. They would all agree with that. Every thoroughgoing Jew would agree in the name of the Father, but also in the name of the Son 
and also in the authority in the name of the Holy Spirit. And that was the promise that he had held out for three and a half years to his disciples, that someday the Spirit of God was going to come and dwell them, and that he was going to go away, and when he went away, he would send the Spirit. And that happened at Pentecost. And so now he could say, now that all authority is given to me, now you can baptize people in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, we read that Paul in his travels came across a disciple of John. And he said, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And he said, we don't even know that there is a Holy Spirit. And Paul asked him, well, what baptism were you baptized in? And he says, John's baptism. Well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was not a baptism into the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so Paul rebaptized him for all you rebaptizers out there, for all you Anabaptists out there. I'm one of them. That in fact, he rebaptized him and he received the Holy Spirit. So, this is a, a really important turning point in human history. Jesus has just thrown open the door that was exclusively a Jewish thing. He's now thrown open the door to everybody, all nations. And the qualifications are be a disciple, be a learner, learn about Jesus, study your Bible, understand the word, which you will only do by the Holy Spirit and therefore be baptized not just in the name of the Father like John's baptism. Don't just be baptized as an act of repentance, but now be baptized through the authority of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he says, teach them, this is verse 20, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, they'd been for 1,400 years teaching everything that Moses had commanded them. And he's now turned that around and said, me, I'm the center of the religious universe. Whatever I have said, that's what you teach my disciples. Go and teach them about me. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And with that, we close the book of Matthew. And that only took about 90 weeks. <laughs> A fair smattering of applause. Starting next week, we're going to take some time to look at more Pauline theology. You know that I call myself a Paulinist. We're going to go back and look at Paul's theology. And right at the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians, he's going to tell us that Christ is our Passover. That these things that we've read about in Matthew now have theological implications. And Paul's going to talk about that. So we're going to talk about that. You had your hand up. Yeah, you have to understand what the, the translation doubted there really means. The Greek word has to do with unbelief, uh, not like lack of faith. But if you saw somebody die, and then three days later, you see them standing there, John tells us that some of them thought he was a phantom. He was a spirit. He was a ghost, which is why he said to Thomas, you know, put your hands in the nail prints. It's me. I'm flesh and bone. And a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone. So the doubt there is that they couldn't believe what they were seeing. Not that they were going, oh, I doubt that he's alive. He's standing right there. But they couldn't believe that he was alive. So make more sense? Good. Yes, sir. Do our Armenian friends sometimes argue that all nations means all people? Yeah, sure they do, of course. But there are so many qualifiers and so many particularities in all of the language of the Bible. You have to realize that all nations means over and against Jews exclusively. 
Because like I said, at the beginning, the first time he sent out his apostles, he said, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of, of the house of Israel. And now he's saying, go to all nations. And by the way, when you get to the book of Revelation and you read about the church, you read that there are people there from every tongue and tribe, language and nation. So, in fact, the church is ultimately made up of all people groups, all nations. So I would actually agree with the all quality of saying all nations. But it doesn't say all individuals. Because this is the same Jesus who has been saying, how will you escape the fires of hell? Well, then he's not planning on making disciples out of them. Right? Yeah. Anything else? You know, I've been doing Revelation. Every time Jesus is presented in heaven, he's sitting on the throne as a lamb. We're going to see that First Corinthians. Paul's going to make that connection again. He is our Passover lamb. Because after 1,400 years of the law, that concept of the Passover lamb is so imprinted on the Jewish mind and conscience. You had to go find that lamb, spotless lamb, baby lamb, and then you had to take him in your house for several days. And if you have kids, forget it. The kids are going to fall in love with the baby lamb. And then the father of the house had to take that lamb, string him up by his feet, take a knife, slice open his neck, catch the blood in the bowl. <laughs> and so that concept, again, 1,400 years, that concept of a Passover lamb, the Paschal lamb, is so firm, so imprinted on their conscience that to call Jesus the Passover lamb resonates with the Jewish audience because they know exactly what that means. He's the sacrifice that God made. So. But in the new heaven and the new earth, where he could be, you know, showing his glory, he's sitting there as a lamb. Sitting there as a lamb. That's how John saw him. Yeah. Anything else? Any prayer requests? Anything we need to consider besides thank goodness for dads? If, if you have a good dad, by the way, let me say this. If you have a good dad, you're blessed. You're very blessed. All it takes to be a dad is the ability to have a kid. But to have a dad that will spend the time raising you and loving you, that, that's a blessing. And I'm one of those fortunate people who had a really good dad. All right, you win. I'll get you a present. Okay. <laughs> that's all I was shooting for. <laughs> Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.